All right, we're in the middle of uh, Genesis 47, verses 14, uh, sorry, 13 through 26. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, it's uh, page 41. Let's hear the word of our God. Now there was no food at all in the land, for the famine, the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan to exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests have a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, he did not sell their land. Sorry, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, we are, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone, did not become Pharaoh's. Let's pray. Father, this morning I feel woefully insufficient for these things. But you reminded Judah, after the exile, that the promises that they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might and Judah's power. They would be, they would be done by your spirit, and so I ask that you would send your spirit this morning to illumine the scriptures, to apply them to us, to enable us to believe them, to sanctify us, to stir us up to worship and service to you. 
And may your spirit do these things and more through Jesus' name. Amen. It was the 17th century, and it was the time around the English Civil War that was taking place. And one of the, th- the books that was written during that time was by a covenanter, a guy by the name of Samuel Rutherford. And the name of this book is Lex Rex. And Lex Rex was written, <clears throat> as it, in a sense, as a protest to the power that the king sought for himself. It was against the notion of the divine right of kings, the idea <clears throat> that the king was answerable to no one but himself. And so Samuel Rutherford, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> was expressing the ideas that we take for granted today in many ways. He expressed the idea of a, of a limited government, of a government that was bound by constitution and law that regulated the conduct not just of the people, but also of the king or whatever magistrate happened to be above them. This was land, this was, you know, groundbreaking in so many ways. It was upon this work in, in many ways that John Locke began his work. In thinking about this, he departed from Samuel Rutherford in, in some ways that are uh, significant and important, particularly the idea of religious toleration. But that lay the foundation for the massive change in how governments saw themselves that took place in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. All this little guy by the name of Samuel Rutherford. That touches this, because what we see is the growing power of a particular government in Egypt. The big idea this morning is that we are to serve the true Savior and not the pretenders, because there are many pretenders who want your allegiance, who want your service, but offer you nothing like Jesus offers you. Let us begin with the idea that is found here that the state can be a benefactor and a beast. The state can be a benefactor and a beast. We see Joseph, who has been exalted. Even though he's not an Egyptian, he is basically, essentially, the ruler of all Egypt. He serves Pharaoh, and he enacts laws for the benefit of Pharaoh. And he has prepared the nation for these seven years of famine. But what we see as we come back to the text is that this famine was incredibly severe. In fact, Moses keeps saying to us, interesting, Egypt and Canaan. He mentions Canaan a lot in this passage. Three times he mentions Canaan. He's stressing Canaan precisely because that is where the Israelites came from. So he wants to remind us that if they had not come to Egypt, they probably would have perished. Because this famine is so severe that Egypt and Canaan are both languishing. They're falling apart. There's not enough food. The people are starving. It's almost like creation is coming undone in some sense of things. These people are experiencing the law of diminishing returns. There is still sowing and reaping going on, but there is less and less because of this harsh wind that is destroying the crops. This is similar to the Great Depression. The center of our country was called the Great Dust Bowl because nothing could grow and it impoverished a nation. 
That's something similar to what we, we're, they're experiencing here in, the, in Egypt at this time. And we see that first, of course, they go and they bring their money, they bring their silver, they bring their coins, gold, whatever it is they had their money in. They bring it to Joseph to purchase food. Okay? <clears throat> and at first, it is both Egypt and Canaan that do this. And so the people, not just of Egypt, but also the people of Canaan, just like Joseph's family, you know, Jacob and his, and his sons, they brought money. So they begin to exchange the money. But what's interesting to me is, maybe it's interesting to you, I don't know. The Egyptians, where did all this food come from? They got taxed. They had to give one-fifth of their um, harvest for the, the seven years of plenty into the government coffers. And you'd think that if you're a citizen, you might get free food from the government coffers since you put it there. But alas, it was not to be. They too had to pony up cash to eat for these seven years. So it's not just the Canaanites and the other people around Egypt suffering under this famine that had to pay for food, but it's also the Egyptians themselves. And of course, we all know there are no banks the money that was under their mattresses soon disappears. And they come and they come to Joseph and they say, the money's all gone. Well, you know, we don't want to die before you here. You know, what, what can happen? And so Joseph comes up with the idea, sell me your livestock, your horses, your cattle, your sheep, your goats, and so the people begin to bring all of the different livestock animals, these, you know, to, to Joseph for food. And again, we have the idea that it's not just, um, Egypt, but Canaan that does this. And so, Pharaoh, through the famine, is beginning, has accumulated almost all of the wealth in Egypt and the surrounding nations. He has gotten Mighty rich in this process. His power, not just his wealth, but his power is increasing. Because now, there is life and death power over the people because he controls the sole source of sufficient food in the midst of this famine. Can you see how when your dependency upon Someone increases, the power they have on you, over you, also increases. Be careful. To whom, upon whom you are dependent. So, in this sense, thus far, he almost, you know, Pharaoh kind of looks like a benefactor. He's taking care of his people. Okay? So far, it's, it's good. Okay? But then, that runs out. There's no more money, there's no more livestock, and there's still famine. These people are desperate. And there's a shift now. Now the idea is not Joseph's idea. The idea, the bargain is made by the people. They're so desperate that they say, buy us in our land. We're willing to become the slaves of Pharaoh to live. See how desperate they are? 
we can't really fathom this. I, I, I've never been in that kind of situation where I, I've even crossed my mind to sell myself to another human being so that I might live. Okay, this is a horrific sort of thing that they're experiencing, and so we we have to keep that in mind. But they were willing to sell themselves into slavery, but you'll notice that Canaan doesn't come. This is just Egypt. A shift kind of takes place. This willing, uh, uh, you know, selling themselves into slavery really sort of foreshadows what's going to come in the life of Israel. But it's different. Instead of willingly selling themselves into slavery, Israel's going to be forced into slavery. Okay, against their wills, they're going to be put down into this condition of slavery. Okay? And so we see from this history of, of Egypt and of Israel together, we see that the state can shift from benefactor to beast. That as the power and dependency increase, there are more and more strings attached to the good stuff. And the people, whether they know it or not, can become enslaved. I thought of uh, this particular instance. When I was at RTS, I had the, the privilege of taking a class with Dr. Charles McKenzie. And I just wished him happy birthday this past week because he's like 900 years old now. Okay, he's up there, you know. Before he was essentially a professor emeritus at RTS Orlando, he used to be the president of Grove City College, which some of you may have heard of and actually uh, David looked at, I believe. Eons ago, which especially it wasn't all that long ago, there was a big lawsuit, Grove City and the U.S., and what it had to do, do with was financial aid. And so the government was saying, since, you, since your students receive federal funds, we, as the U.S. government, have the right to dictate certain policies happen within Grove City College. And so Grove City's solution to this was, okay, no, none of our students will receive federal financial aid. And so if you go to seminary now, or, or, or many of the Christian colleges now, you will not be able to receive federal financial aid. Your GI dollar uh, bill dollars won't get to you, because with the, with the benefit comes the strings. And that's not the only thing, the only way in which this takes place. But I think that's an example that's, you know, distant enough from us to not be controversial. Now, as we think about the state, we have to keep a couple things in mind. That, first of all, as, as Paul talks about in Romans 13, that the state was instituted by God. The state government is not evil, necessarily. Now, there are certain people like theologian Gregory Boyd, who think that all government is evil because it is coercive in some sense, in some sense, and therefore is necessarily evil. Scripture doesn't have that position that government is evil. It was instituted by God, and it was instituted by God for our good, as we see right there in, in Romans 13. Uh, you know, that's why we're told in part to be submissive to those who are in authority over us, and that includes the government. Uh, Peter also mentions the same idea in his letters, that we're, we're to be obedient to the government. It is God's servant for our good. 
Okay? Always with the, the known limits that they cannot violate God's command. They can't command us to sin. That's when we say no to the government. Okay? But Scripture also recognizes, in places like Revelation 13, as well as Exodus, that government can often come not under the influence of God, but the influence of the evil one, and begin to resist God's good purposes and basically grab power for itself and begin to oppress people. Not every government is a good government. Okay, Now you're moving away from the, the abstract notion of government into particular governments, and some are better than others. Some are more influenced by the evil one than others. I read uh, just this week about a former... I guess he was called president, but he was really dictator. <laughs> and in Gambian, it was one of the African nations I'd never heard of before. But when he was kind of removed, they, you know, they were trying to trace down all the money, and he had, you know, close to they found close to two hundred million dollars that he had stolen from the people of that country. Okay, this happens all the time in places. This is part of why we see that, that Paul tells Timothy to pray. I urge you then that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. He recognizes that governments can go bad, and so one of the ways we keep governments from going bad is by praying for those governments And his goal, he says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so one way you you maintain your freedom as a Christian is pray for those who are in power. Pray that they would maintain freedoms, that they would be kindly disposed towards people of faith and not oppressors of people of faith. What we also see in Deuteronomy, which Mike read for us this morning, was that Israel was eventually going to have a king. But that king was different than the kings of the nations because he was going to be bound by the law. Isn't that interesting? He had to write by his own hand. He couldn't outsource this. Okay, He had to write his own copy of the law. And he was to read it all the time because he was to remember that this was God's covenant with Israel and that he was to, as the king of Israel, maintain that covenant and live under the authority of God himself. And that's where Rutherford gets this idea of a limited constitutional government. Now, he doesn't say that it has to be you know, the Mosaic law. He doesn't say that, but he recognizes that this is how God... It intends for governments to work, for there be, to be a law that holds the king or the magistrate accountable. And so when there are strings attached, a benefactor can quickly turn into a beast. There's some good news in here. Really, there is. God distinguishes his people from the nations because there are bookends to this. The prosperity of Israel, despite the famine, is a bookend to the impoverishment of Egypt. We, we see it, you know, in the passage we had last week, that Joseph provided for all his father's household with food. Okay? And so, while everyone else is getting 
all of their money and their wealth being, is being taken away by Pharaoh, Israel is, be, is being provided for, just like the priests of Egypt, being provided for by Joseph. They're not buying food. They're not selling their livestock for all of this. At the end of this passage that we read, in verse 26, we also see this. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And I notice that there's a street on my way to work, Goshen. Okay. Uh, I don't know why they named it Goshen, but it's there. Um, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And so Israel is prospering in Goshen. Okay, we, we see about the impoverishment of the Egyptians, but we see the incredible prosperity of the Israelites in Goshen at this point in time. The text also mentions that the priests were not impoverished either. They had an allowance from the king. They were, it was basically a state church. Okay, they were provided for uh, this. And one of the things that Lex Rex talks about is, is disconnecting the church from the state. Because he was weary of how the king of England was lording it over the people of God in England and Scotland. That, that the church was supposed to obey God and that he was the one to regulate how worship took place in the church, not the king of England. So that was one of the aspects uh, that you find in Lex Rex. In Israel, we find that the king did not support the priests. What we find instead is that God is the one who provided the land. God is the one who, through his people with tithes, commanded the tithe to provide for the Levites and then for the priests. And so it was the people directly who supported the, the, the cult of Israel, the worship of Israel. It was not the state that provided for the worship of Israel. So very different from what you see taking place in Egypt. But there's more going on here. Back to the Israel, the Egyptians rather. At the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And so basically what happens here is that Joseph has given them seed, grain, seed. And they're going to plant a bunch of that. And when it grows, one-fifth of it, 20%, is supposed to go back to Pharaoh every year. The rest of it they keep so that they can eat, they can feed their, their flocks. Well, actually, Pharaoh's flocks. And, <laughs> and so they can also plant for the next year. So this is sort of the seed money for their future, okay? But 20% of it is intended to go back to him. They're, they're, his, they're sharecroppers. They're working Pharaoh's land, okay? They're going to give him his kickback. They're now working for Pharaoh. He is the man. What we also see, however, particularly earlier in this chapter, the last week we looked at this, Pharaoh welcomed Israel, Right? Gave him good land, right? He did this because of Joseph, remember? Let's think back. Go back in Genesis, all the way to Genesis 12. Part of the promise that God gave to Abraham was, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so in this instance, although he is taking everything from the Egyptians, Pharaoh is blessing Israel. 
He's welcomed them. He's given them good land. He's allowing Joseph to provide for their financial needs. He's given them jobs. He is blessing Israel. And so he, although his people are being impoverished, Pharaoh himself is being enriched. There's a sense in which he is receiving great blessing because he is treating Israel well. In Exodus 1, we read about a new dynasty with a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and therefore did not welcome Israel for Joseph's sake. And he oppressed Israel. And what happened to him? He cursed Israel. God cursed Egypt. We see a principle at work here in light of Genesis 12. And so in light of that, okay, well, before I get there, we also see that the the current separation of Israel from the rest of Egypt and how they are treated distinctly from the rest of the Egyptians foreshadows what's going to take place during those covenant, those curses that will come upon Egypt. Because most of those do not fall upon Israel. A couple of the first ones do, like, you know, dark, you know, no, not darkness, but, um, you know, when the, when the, the Nile turns to blood, that affects everybody. But most of the, most of the, the plagues that take place are oppressive upon Egypt, but don't affect Israel. God distinguished Israel from the nation, the other nations in that. Okay. So as we kind of step back, I think we can look at history through the lens of Scripture, and we can see that nations which welcomed the church because we are God's people, because we are heirs of Abraham, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3, we are the sons of Abraham, that when nations welcome and, and are kindly disposed towards the church, what happens is those nations tend to go well. They tend to prosper. So in a sense, there's like strings with God. But the strings are not arbitrary. The strings are regulated by God's covenant and promise as, in, as found in Genesis 12. Okay. God says, essentially, you bless my people. I'll bless you in earthly ways. You curse my people. I will curse you in earthly ways. And so we see that the nations that tend not to welcome God's people, who tend to oppress the faith of of people, what happens? They tend to be impoverished. Now, from an earthly perspective, we might look at the Soviet bloc nations and go, you know, it was Ronald Reagan and the military war, you know, the um, trying to outdo each other and spending too much money in the military. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a means. But you know ultimately what I think it is? The Soviet Union oppressed God's people, and God took them down. He impoverished them by various means so that the gospel can then go forth in those nations. What happened when the wall came down? The Christians went through. It's not just about power and money. It's about the gospel. So I, I, I look at history. This is what I see taking place. That nations that despise and persecute the church usually experience decline and destruction. When we look at Revelation, what we see is a hope there, the reality that the persecution won't last and that the persecutors themselves won't last. There's hope. 
that is found in Revelation. And so God also has strings attached. Nations are treated based on their treatment of God's people because he loves his people. He redeemed them with the blood of his son. So we see that the state can be a benefactor and a beast. We see that God distinguishes his people from the nations. And lastly, I want us to see that service is our response to such a great salvation. Yes, service is our response to such a great salvation. Now, the divine right of kings, which is what Samuel Rutherford was writing against, meant that the kings had all of the power in a country. They had all the wealth. They, they decided which lord had the best land and which lord had the worst land. You know, and depending on which lord you served, you had good land or bad land or mediocre land. Right? The power was all in the king. Pharaoh thought he was a god. And now Pharaoh in this text is beginning to live like a god because he controls everything. But the reality is is that the true god is the only one that has the divine rights of a king. He is the creator of the earth, and he is the one who disposes it to whom he pleases. As we see in the prophets, he raises kings up and he takes kings down. The reason he could give Israel Canaan the promised land was because he owned it. It was his to give freely. And so we see in the life of Israel that land was not a permanent thing, in, in a sense. It wasn't, to be, wasn't a commodity you could buy or sell. If you sold your land, it was only temporary because it belonged to God, and you basically worked it. Right. It was an inheritance. And so even though governments often try to do these power grabs, God typically balances them out. I know there's a lot of people who complain about gridlock in government. I think it's a good thing. <laughs> because what it means is, is that no one has absolute power, no party has absolute power. And so they cannot do whatever it is they want. They're limited. And so they, they can't typically mess things up as much as they want to. Um, because a lot of times it's really about power, not the welfare of the people. There are some politicians who do care about the citizens, but maybe I'm too negative. That's possible. Um, hopefully I'm not too old and bitter. But anyway, back to the text. The people speaking to Joseph say, You have saved our lives. We will be your servants. Their gratitude to Joseph led them to their service to Pharaoh. Okay? What they didn't realize was that ultimately it was God, the real God, not the fake God, the pretender God, Pharaoh, that saved them. Who put Joseph there? God. Who interpreted the dreams? God. Who gave Pharaoh the dreams? God. Who's the one who gave Joseph the wisdom to know what to do in light of this coming tragedy? God. The one they should be serving is the one true God. Not the pretender, 
Pharaoh. As James says in the first chapter of his letter, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift and every perfect is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow to change. And so when government does good, praise God. Because ultimately, He worked for the good of people. And there are good things governments do. When it happens, we give thanks. But what is so sad to me is that when people are so dependent on earthly powers, they act as if they're saviors. We are not to put our trust in princes, in horses, in men but to put our trust in God. And we, brothers and sisters, have a far greater salvation than they did. They had an earthly salvation from the famine. We have an eternal salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not delivered from, and I pause and I say this, mere famine, because I've never been in a famine. And if you're in one, it doesn't seem very mere, I'm sure. Okay, But delivered from hell itself. Jesus redeemed us so that we would be His willing servants. That we would live for Him and not self. Uh, Earlier I I mentioned uh, out of our words of forgiveness, um, I quoted from 2 Corinthians 5. I want to quote from 2 Corinthians 5 again, a little bit earlier in the text. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, for their sake died and was raised. And so there's a couple things going on here. He's talking about the love of Christ, God's love in Christ for us. Okay? This compels him. It controls him. It moves him in a certain way. It is intended to move us in a particular way. And that, but one of the particular ways it is meant to move us is that we no longer live for ourselves, but we begin to live for him who gave himself for us. We who did not deserve it, but quite the opposite. We deserved to be put to death. And so because Jesus died for us and was raised for us, we now can live for Him. Not just can, should. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus held nothing back for us. I'm reading Derek Thomas's book, I finished it yesterday, on Romans 8, and how the fact that the Father did not spare His only Son, and that Jesus Himself He didn't want to do it. But he obeyed his father. He did not try to spare himself. But saw the joy that was before him. And so, God God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, neither of them held anything back for us. It is all of grace. And so as a result, there's nothing we can hold 
back. Derek Thomas, in his chapter on sons of God, mentions this. Our obedience to him must always come from thankful hearts. We gladly and willingly give our Father whatever He asks of us precisely because He loves us. It is to be willing service engaged in from the heart, a heart that has fallen in love with the One who first loved us. And so we need to keep that idea of obedience within that framework that says He has loved us with an everlasting love and with a sufficient, efficacious love. He died for our sins to make us new people. How much we love Him and we show we love Him by serving Him. God owed us nothing and gave everything. And there's nothing he can't ask of us. Tim Keller, in a couple of his sermons, talks about this woman who was wrestling with grace. And actually grace frightened her because she got it. She understood. She knew that there was nothing that she did that contributed to her salvation. And if that is so, if it is all of Christ, then that means God can ask anything from her. And that scared her to death. There was, you know, she couldn't say, no, God, you owe me something because you know what? I contributed this little slice of something, so I'm going to hold this little part of me back from you. She couldn't do that. She understood grace. There's nothing we should hold back And if we're reflecting his love for us, then ultimately there's nothing we want to hold back. Because his commands are not about his authoritarianism. It's not about his power and control, although he obviously is sovereign. But they're a reflection of his love. It's what's good for us. And so strings are often attached by benefactors, almost like puppets on a string. They make you, make you want to dance. There's your little objective, whatever for a moment, object lesson for a moment. Um, when they do, the benefactor becomes a beast that we must obey or suffer. While we should expect love from a family and friends, we shouldn't from governments and businesses or banks. Don't expect them to love you. That's not their calling. Unlike them, however, God gives everything before he asks for everything. But he asks out of love, not the quest for power. He asks for love, not mere obedience. So how do you view his strings? Do you view them as cords of love to lead you to a good place? Or do you view them as just someone else trying to exert authoritarian power and tell you what to do, man? That really reveals 
what you understand or don't understand about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, providentially we are here uh, talking about this stuff. And your word brings us to places that talk about things that we're not always excited to talk about or hear about. And yet we, I thank you that you speak to us what we need to hear, what we need to be reminded of, how we need to be challenged in our thinking. Because so often we think in the pattern of fallen man. So I ask that you would be at work in us to have a biblical perspective of, of government, its rightful place, and its tendency towards excess, that we might have wisdom in our expectations and our desires. But more importantly, that we would really grapple with this idea that we are to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again for us. Help us to figure that out. Where, Because that's different for each of us, where it's hard, where we have trouble letting go. We need to be grounded in, in your love. And so be, be at work in us in that. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.